It's great to be here with you this morning, whether here on our Canandaigua campus or perhaps you're watching from the Hopewell campus or online campus. It's great to be able to start this new series with you. We start this morning a new series we're calling Metamorphosis. We're going to be looking at Romans chapter 9 through 16. If you're with us in the fall, we looked at Romans 1 through 8 then, and so we're going to work our way through the rest of the book and get in this series, Metamorphosis. Metamorphosis speaks of a change. It, it can be a physical change. It can be a change of structure. It can be a change of substance. You know, some examples that we know of metamorphosis is like from a caterpillar when it becomes a butterfly or a tadpole uh, becoming a frog. But for me, I think probably the greatest example of a metamorphosis is a transformation that happens in a person's life when they come to Jesus Christ. The difference from what they were to who they are in him. The word metamorphosis actually comes from a Greek word, which means to change into another form. It can be an external change. It can be a change of position. It can be an internal change. And a person who becomes a believer certainly experiences some significant change. They change in, in their position. Uh, they change inwardly as they become more and more like Christ. We call that sanctification. Now, this is why the New Testament uses this Greek word metamorpho to describe a transformation from who a person was apart from Christ to the, who they are now that they're walking in Christ. I, I mean, think of the journey. Look, Think back of Romans 1 through 8 if you were here. If not, here's sort of a review a little bit. A, a believer will one day experience the full transformation of the work that God is doing in them when Christ returns. We, we call that glorification. They have experienced this personal transformation where the scripture says we literally change position. We go from sinner to saint in the eyes of God. Like we, we, we have that positional change. And we call that justification. But currently, we're experiencing by the power of God's spirit, this becoming, this becoming more and more like Jesus. And again, we call that sanctification. This is the work of salvation in our life that Paul unpacked for us in Romans chapters 1 through 8. And of course, this inner transformation is what Paul spoke to the church in Corinth. He's writing to the believers there in the church in Corinth. And in 2 Corinthians 3.18, this is what we read. For we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed. Now that's that word metamorpho. Are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Now Paul's not speaking here of some like mystical deification. He's not saying we become a god. But once again, he, he's, he's talking about achieving a divine likeness, a divine likeness, like becoming like Jesus, not in his divinity, not in Jesus being God, but becoming like Jesus in his love, becoming like Jesus in his character, becoming like Jesus in, in, in taking on his purpose and his priorities. And this occurs through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. It, it's not for just some elite group of Christians. It, it's for all of us. It's not just a hope for the future. It's, it begins when the Holy Spirit enters a believer's life. And, and it really, and it carries with it this command, Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. Again, that word metamorpho. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is as good, acceptable, and perfect. 
as we give ourselves to God, he, he sanctifies us through the renewing of our mind. He, he changes the way we think. He, he, he allows our will to be his will. And, and this all happens by the power of the Holy Spirit. In fact, and it's accurate to say that really what sanctification talks about, this becoming like Jesus, is really becoming who we already are in him. Like, like we're a saint in Jesus, and you've heard me say that. If you're a Christian, you're a saint. Now, don't go around and call yourself saint whatever. You've heard me say that many times, but you are. And you say, well, why is that important? Because knowing what the scripture says we are changes the way we walk. And so as we're becoming more and more like Jesus, we're being transformed into the image that he sees us through the lens of Christ. I mean, it's a remarkable thing when you think about it. That when we enter into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, that the scripture says his righteousness becomes our righteousness. So God sees us through the righteousness of Jesus. And yet each and every one of us know every day, we probably fall a little short of that. But we're becoming. It's a beautiful picture of transformation. It's metamorphosis that happens in the life of a believer. And so you can see why we've called this series metamorphosis. As we look at the teaching from Paul in Romans 9 through 16, I believe God's going to do this work of helping us become more and more like Jesus. Or another way of saying that is as we approach God's word and seek to master it, I believe it's going to be God's word that masters us, it, it, transforming our heart and our will. Romans 9 through 16 covers several topics that really carries on the theme of, of Romans 8. In, in other words, Paul writes in Romans 8, we need to walk by the Spirit. And so in Romans 9 through 16, he says, this is how those who walk by the Spirit understand God, how they treat one another, how they deal with the world around them. So I want to quickly review, just real quick, Romans 1 through 8. And this will be the quickest review of Romans 1 through 8 you probably have ever experienced, okay? Romans 1 through 8, Paul just clearly writes out that everyone needs Jesus, like, like the bad news, right, is that we're all in the same boat. We all need a savior. The good news is God created us to be in relationship with him. The bad news is sin separates us from God. And we're all there. Then the good news is, but as we place our faith in Jesus Christ, we're made right with God. Again, the word justified, we're acquitted. Now, how does that happen? Not by our work, because of Christ's work. He died for our sins, resurrected for our salvation. We place our faith in him, we're made right with God. Now, in this God-focused letter, Paul begins by, by addressing this. Can God be trusted? That's a big question. Not just when we enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ, but as we continue to walk in relationship with Jesus Christ. In fact, those in Rome who Paul is writing to in the book of Romans was asking a question. And this question was, are God's promises something we can trust? So the letter will lead us into this study this week in chapter 9 of God's sovereignty and human free will. God's sovereignty and human free will. And I'm going to answer a question that I believe this passage doesn't directly speak to, but the principles do. And here's the question. When a person comes to Christ, who chooses it? Like, does God choose for us to be Christian, or do we choose him? That's a great question, and we'll get to it in about 20 minutes. Great question. The famous preacher Charles Hayden Spurgeon was once asked, how do you reconcile 
the doctrine of God's sovereignty and human responsibility, human free will. I love his reply. He said, I don't, for I never try to reconcile friends. That's one of the most beautiful sidesteps I've ever heard in history of Christianity. He's like, I don't, I don't need to. And basically what you'll find is he didn't because he didn't know how to. And I don't think any of us totally do. You say, Craig, well, what are you talking about? Stick with me. I've heard it said that God's sovereignty and human free will are like two sides of the same coin. They're, they're sort of an antinomy, so to speak. An antinomy, we, we, they're two concepts that we don't really totally understand how they work together, but we believe and trust that they do. And I want to give us a caution that when we study Scripture, especially this idea of God's sovereignty and human free will, we've got to be cautious of, of reductionism. What's reductionism? Reductionism is breaking something down to the smallest pieces we can and then trying to put them together in such a way that we answer the parts that we don't see found in Scripture answered. And I think a lot of us would be tempted to do that, to sort of, and instead of allowing the word to, to speak its truth to us and admit that there's areas which just are mysterious. Have you ever gotten there in your study of Scripture? Where you've gone as far as you can go and you go, I understand enough to believe, but I don't totally understand it. Reductionism can, can tempt us to try to fill in the gaps with our own thinking in that area. Well, this is how it has to work. I just want to say, I caution us that there's a mystery in Scripture. In other words, I believe that Scripture presents us with enough insight into God's sovereignty and human free will to be confident they both exist and that they both work together, but it doesn't present us with enough to really give a solid argument with all the pieces lined up in a, in a, in a row that says, here's my argument, I've proven it. Let me give you an example in everyday life. I believe airplanes can fly. They can, by the way. You're getting quiet. You, you know, I've seen them. I've flown many times. If I had to explain to you how an airplane flies, I would do a miserable job. Like, I could go into aerodynamics. I could talk about certain things. But really, at the end of the day, if those of you out there, and I know some of you are there, go, I totally understand how an airplane flies. If I tried to explain it, you'd go, he really ruined that one. But I believe and know enough that I've trusted they fly and flow many times. I came here in a truck that I believed would get me here. I'm not really sure how a truck works. I really don't entirely, to be honest with you. I'm at the mercy of my mechanic. If I showed up and he said, hey, the figment jig broke, I'd go, man, you better fix the figment jig, right? I mean, I, I, I really, I have to trust that my mechanic is a good man because if not, he could take a lot of money from it, more than he does. But the, the reality of it is, I trusted that it was going to run. Now, by the way, some vehicles I've had have had to have more faith than others. But I couldn't entirely explain it to you. I use a computer almost every day. I can't explain how that thing works. Now, some of you probably could, but I couldn't. Matter of fact, I remember years ago, a friend and I were talking and saying, you know, those who understand how computers work, and for some reason, they were gone. We, like, would be in big trouble. Like, you know what I'm saying? Think about all the things that computers operate in our life that we're so used to and take for granted. If people who understood that were gone, we'd, like, be back to, like, firewood and stuff. I don't want that, you know? He said, Craig, wait a here's the point. I don't totally understand how airplanes fly. I don't totally understand how my truck works. I don't understand. I believe enough to use them. I believe enough to use them. C.S. Lewis once declared, a God I can fully understand is no God. Let that sink in for a minute. 
A God I can fully understand is no God. Why did he say that? Because if a God isn't beyond our comprehension, then he isn't beyond us. And so it should be of no surprise that there are some things in scripture that are a little mysterious. And yet with that being said, the word of God, God so graciously brings the word of God before us and presents enough so that we can believe. Trust. Walk in. So let me give you a brief overview of what's happening in chapter 9. We're not going to be looking at the whole chapter verse for verse. We're going to look at a couple of, of, of explanations of this, of this amazing question that they're asking. Some in the church, Jewish believers, were asking the question, well, since the nation of Israel didn't turn to God through Jesus Christ, the whole nation, had God's plan failed? Like if that was God's plan and it's not happening, had it failed? Because... And Paul is saying, well, it's, it's, it's a fallacious argument. God hadn't failed. When, when he sent his Messiah to the Jewish people, he didn't do it in such a way that they didn't have a choice. They could choose to follow him or not. Paul, by the way, is a Jewish believer. One from Israel, of the many who, who chose Jesus Christ. But, but here's the thing. They were wrestling over, if God promised their, their ancient forefathers, the patriarchs, but this Messiah would come and bring salvation, and many of the people of Israel aren't following him, was God true to his promises to the patriarchs? In other words, is God a God of integrity? If he says it, do we, can we believe it? And I think this is so crucial in all of times. I mean, I've heard this over and over again. People say, we live in chaotic times. As a matter of fact, I wrote last week to you as a church family saying, we live in chaotic times. And then I thought about, it. we've always lived in chaotic times. Like the world has been a mess since Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. You know, I think every generation has said, this is a chaotic time, and they were all right. So is God true to his promises? And it's so important that we understand he is, or we can't walk through this chaotic world in the way that God has equipped us to do so. See, oftentimes we, we just sort of misunderstand the promises of God. And, and, God pres- and Paul presents really a couple of insights in, in chapter 9 about God's promises, especially pertaining to his promise to the patriarchs. First is this, God's ancient promises have not been demonstrated to be false events. God's sovereign plans is coming to fruition. Now, what's that mean? Paul's teaching that, you know, you're judging whether God's promise is true by what you can see. And if we could be honest, we can't see beginning to end. I mean, at least I can't, but God can. And I've found even in my own walk with God that I've robbed myself of of the confidence that I can have in the Lord because I have questioned whether his promise is being fulfilled while I'm in the midst of the fulfilling of it. Does that make sense? Like God's divine will is still being worked out. And so when I sit back and I go, God, where are you? And God said, I'm working. That's what Paul says to the people in chapter 9. He says, listen, God's working, and God's plan will come to fruition. The second thing is this. God's promises have been misunderstood. And and, and this is important because Paul really lays out in Romans 1 through 8 that when God promised Abraham, Father Abraham, when he said that your children will be a mighty nation, in fact, there'll be more of them in the stars in the sky, more of them in the sands in the sea, just sort of saying there's going to be a lot of them. Paul says he wasn't just talking about biological children. So he wasn't just talking about Israel. 
He was talking about every single person who comes to Christ, that if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, you're like a spiritual child of Abraham. And so they totally were misunderstanding the promise. And I wonder sometimes in our own walk with Jesus, if, if, if we're questioning God's promises because maybe we've misunderstood what the promise is, like peace. I think it's great to pray for peace in the world. Now, if I understand history and if I understand the word of God, right, it's not going to fully happen until Jesus returns. Keep praying for it. Keep working for it. We want God's kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. There are pockets of peace, but God's promise of peace for us now and here and now before Jesus returns is inner peace. Now, some people would say, wouldn't it be just great if God would just make peace? That would be a miracle. But you know what the greater miracle is? Is God's promise of peace for the believer that we can have peace even in the midst of chaos. In fact, that not only can we have peace in the midst of chaos, but God's promise is, is that we can be ambassadors of his peace, that we can literally take peace into the chaos. Now that's a big God. But if we somehow misread the promises of God, we, we can find ourselves sitting there saying, God, why aren't you being true to your promises? When God says, I am being true to my promises, you just didn't understand them. So think about it. Paul's writing about salvation in Christ, and, and, and salvation only comes in Christ, right? And only Christ alone for all people. And he's writing to these Jewish and Gentile believers, those who are from Israel and those who are not from Israel. And he's saying, listen, 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 God is not failing. His plans will succeed. In fact, Paul will write later, but one of the reasons he is evangelizing, sharing Christ with those who aren't from Israel is because he's hoping his own people will come to Christ. He's not anti-Semitic. He is Jewish after all. He loves his people. However, the main topic is not the future of Israel. Again, it's the integrity of God. And what he does is he writes about God's sovereignty and human free will, again, being really two sides of the same coin. So Paul in Romans 9 teaches that God is absolutely sovereign. It means he's in control of all things. No outside influences. God is God. He's in control. He's large and in charge. However, he doesn't intend to do away with human decisions. We're not robots. We're not puppets. You and I have choices to make. Uh, again, this, this is an antinomy. It's unresolved sometimes in our mind. But let me get this clear, make this clear. It's not unresolved in God's mind. Like God knows how it works out but he gives us enough to believe. See, it's rightly stated that God determines what happens, and yet I'm responsible for what happens. You say, Craig, explain that to me. No, I can't, but it's true. I can't fully explain it, but I believe enough to know they're compatible. Both God's sovereignty and our free will present us with an understanding that leads to a confidence in God's promises. See, God blesses us to be a blessing. We know that clearly in Scripture. God blesses us to be a blessing, and yet God chooses to bless, us, bless whoever he desires. But catch this. God desires to bless those who are faithful to him. Do you follow that? God blesses us to be a blessing. He blesses those who he chooses, desires to bless. But he chooses to bless those who are faithful to him so that we can bless others. So what does Paul do in Romans 9? He gives us two explanations 
He says, I, I want you to understand this inner workings of God's sovereignty and human free will. And I'm gonna give you two explanations from redemptive history in order to understand how these things work together. And the first, he picks us uh, uh, twins, Jacob and Esau. Their accounts found in the Old Testament book of Genesis. And he contrasts between Jacob and Esau. So look at Romans 9, 10 through 13, the first explanation. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, her father, forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, so Rebekah was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And that's strong language right there. But it's an interesting thing. We have to understand the culture. In the day in which Jacob and Esau lived, the older son was in control of the family. They got the lion's share of the inheritance. They basically got to lead the family, say, we're going to go here together. They did everything as a family unit. Esau, they're twins. They're not born too far apart. In fact, the scripture tells us as Esau was being born, Jacob was reaching up to try to grab Esau and pull him back in. That would be a sort of an interesting and very sick picture. But, but that was sort of what the scripture tells us. And, and so, so what happens? Esau's born first. So who's in control of the family by right? Esau. But God said even before they were born, the older will serve the younger. We're going to dig into that in just a minute. But what does this passage speak of? It's God's sovereignty. He knew from the very beginning what was going to happen. In fact, he says this is what's going to happen. But we also find that there's some choices that are made that come in cooperation with what God had foretold. I believe that the answer to all this, the explanation really helps us, is verse 13. The contrast between Jacob and Esau is best understood as this Hebrew idiom. When it says that, that Jacob I loved and Esau I hated, it didn't mean God hated Esau. No more than when Jesus spoke of those who followed him in Luke, Luke's gospel. He says, if you want to be my follower, you got to hate your mother and father. That doesn't sound really cool. I'm a parent. But it's not really what he was meaning. In fact, in Matthew, he says it this way. If you're going to be my follower, you need to love me more than them. But in the Hebrew dialect, and by the way, those who heard this would have understood it. It was like really common. Like we don't necessarily speak this way very, very often but they would have understood it. That what he was doing is he was saying this. He was saying, look, if you want to really love me and you really want to love your family, then you got to love me more. Like if you want to be a good husband, you got to love God more than your wife. Come on now. If you want to be a good parent, you've got to love God more than your children. If you want to be a good child, you got to love God more than your parents. That's what Jesus is talking about here. And so really what 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 we understand is that God chose Jacob over above Esau. And he does this in two ways. He does this individually. We got to remember the story of Esau. So let's go back to Genesis a bit. Esau comes in from a hunting expedition. You may know the story. And there's Jacob cooking some stew. And Esau is so hungry, he sells his birthright. Now, I hope he was really hungry. Because what he just did is he sold his birthright to Jacob, therefore making Jacob legally the leader of the home. Esau's no longer the leader. What had God said before they were born? The older will 
serve the younger. Esau makes a choice that makes that possible. Esau's hungry. He goes, you know what? I'm hungry. I'm going to die anyway. Who needs this thing? Talk about foolishness. And he sells his birthright for some stew. Now, I've been hungry. I'm never that hungry. And God's plan is fulfilled. God had stated it. God is sovereign. But Esau makes this devastating choice. Secondly, through Jacob comes Israel. God's chosen people. Remember the promise to Abraham is, I'll make you a father of nations. Well, you have Esau, who also has a nation called the Edomites. So, so Jacob's the father of Israel. Israel comes through Jacob, but Esau also has the Edomites come through him. Of course, Israel's known as God's chosen people. The Edomites are known as brothers of Israel, but not followers of God. You go, why is that important? Because here again, God supported Jacob. The promised people come through him. The Messiah comes through that line. He doesn't choose Esau. Now, it's possible that God chose Jacob because he foreknew Jacob's heart. Think about it. However, the point here is that God has the right to choose whomever he wants from the descendants of Abraham. He's God. I believe two things from this passage. Number one, it's very obvious God chose Jacob over Esau. But I believe God chose Jacob over Esau for a good reason. If God chose it, it's got to be good. Right, church? Come on now. Hindsight provides us with evidence of this good choice. Uh, Of course, a perfect God cannot do any less than make a perfect choice. But here we see this synergism between free will and oneself offered to grace. Through God's sovereignty, we have the ability to choose. However, our choice will never thwart the plan of God. He said, Craig, explain that to us. No, I can't, but it's true. You and I have choices, and we're, 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 we're going to be judged by those choices. We, the choices sometimes bring good and sometimes bring bad. Anyone ever made a bad decision and had to suffer the consequence of it? But it doesn't mean that God's sovereign plan isn't at work. What's this have to do with us? Well, in 2021, this is what I mean. We can place our trust in God's plan and promises. Like, we can do it. We may see the world in chaos, but God is not. He's working. Even when we say, God, where are you working? He goes, I'm working. God, why won't you show up? I've been here before you. I'm working. And we can trust in his plans and his promises. Knowing that God's in control ought to bring us peace. Knowing that we're responsible for our choices ought to lead us to to obedience. The second explanation he gives us is this Explanation using mercy and hardening. It's found in Romans 9, 17 through 18. Those two verses. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, God, he, has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Now, for us to understand this account, you've got to go back to the Old Testament book of Exodus. God's people are enslaved in Egypt. God raises up this Pharaoh, who's a very stubborn man. No friend of God. He's a bad character. And we find that the scripture tells us that God hardens Pharaoh's heart. Now, let me point out that nowhere in scripture is it ever said that God hardens a person's heart who hadn't hardened their heart first. And I think it's really important. Pharaoh over and over again hardens his heart. Through Moses, God says, let my people go. Let my people go. 
And Pharaoh at times will say, okay, I will. Then he goes, nah, I'm not going to. He hardens his heart. And so really what God does is what we could call a judicial act. He said, what do you mean a judicial act? Really what God does is he abandons Pharaoh to his own stubbornness. He says, if you want to be stubborn, okay, I'll allow you to be really stubborn. You want to have a hard heart? I'll give you a continuous hard heart. Look at it this way. God raised up this particular Pharaoh to show his power. We we repeatedly find these words in the book of Exodus. I have let you, Pharaoh, live for this reason, that you might see my power, that my fame might spread throughout the earth. Let's camp there for just a minute. One of the things that amazes me throughout the Old Testament is who God calls his servants. Like you would think that the only people that God could call his servants are those who are actually meaningfully serving him. But God says, no, evil Pharaoh, you're my servant. Now, if they had that conversation, Pharaoh would go, I'm not your servant. I'm doing my own thing. And God says, ha ha, but in doing your own thing, you're doing what I wanted you to do. He says to Babylon, an evil nation who's punishing Israel, you're my servant. If they had a conversation, they'd say, I'm not your servant. We don't even believe you exist. Ah, but you don't have to believe I exist. I know you do. And what you're doing is doing what I want you to do. And by the way, you're doing the wrong thing. You're going to be punished for it. But it's okay. You're just sort of doing what needs to be done. Craig, explain that to me. No, I can't. That's how big God is. Like God is so big. I had a person one time send to me, he said, listen, you have such a low view of God's sovereignty. And I said, why? He said, because you believe in human free will. I said, well, the Bible talks about human free will. And I said, Here, here's the thing. I said, I understand you believe in God's sovereignty and you think you have a big view of God's sovereignty. But it's one thing to believe that God is so powerful that, that he has his will done because he makes everyone do his will. I said, I have such a high view of God's sovereignty that he can have his will accomplished among people who may not want to do his will. Have their choice. And all the choices that happened throughout the history of humanity, that Jesus will come back. But of all the choices that could have been made, uh, Jesus did come. That salvation is ours. In the midst of all the poor choices of humanity, God has said, listen, I am here. I am working. My plans will be accomplished. See, the Bible affirms God's sovereignty as well as human free will and responsibility. And so I look at this passage and I go, man, it teaches that God has the power and right to work out his divine plan as he sees fit. That sometimes rubs me wrong. I'll be honest with you. I've been working through that my whole Christian life. You've heard me say when I pray, I'm the great suggester to God. Anyone ever done that? Something happening in your own life or someone's life you love and you say, you know, God, I know you're in control, but have you ever thought about working this way? Your will be done, not mine. That's the clause, right? No matter what you say, you feel that's okay, you know. Your will be done, not mine. No, no, God has the right. And God's sovereignty doesn't violate his integrity. And that means the world to me. That God is in control and he is true to his promises. He's faithful to the faithless. He sticks by us. He'll never leave us or forsake us. So what does this mean for us? We ought to be confident that God is in control. Confident God's in control, but mindful that he created us with free will and therefore responsible for our decisions. How many times do we find ourselves either blaming God for our decisions or blaming God for the decisions of others? People make decisions that hurt people. 
The, the miracle of God is that he's with us in the midst of that pain. He says, let me heal you. Let me strengthen you. Brother in Christ, earlier this morning, came up to me. He said, you know the amazing thing is God's a great recycler. He says, he's taken all the mess in my life. He said, I'm not proud of that stuff. But now that I've been walking with him, he's using it for good. Only an all-powerful God can do that. Paul would have answered his fellow Jews and anyone for that matter who would say something like, God, you know, his plan is flawed. He would say to him, listen, God's sovereign plan is being accomplished. You may not see it, you may not understand it, but he's at work. He might add, don't blame God for your own decisions or the decisions of others. Nobody's with you. Further, he might add, those faithful to God, don't lose heart. Don't lose heart. His plans will succeed. Don't lose heart. The world may be in chaos, but God is not. And our circumstances don't determine our peace. Our trust in Jesus determines it. Not only can we be at peace, we can be ambassadors of peace to the world around us. All of this boils down to this. We can trust God in his plans and his promises. We can be confident he's in control. And it all just sobers up to know we're responsible for our decisions. So let's get back to the original question. Remember the original question I said I would answer 20 minutes Ago. Who chose who? God's sovereign and, and we got human free will. Who chose? Like, did you choose Jesus or did he choose you? And here it is. Okay, the best I can explain. Let's say there's this figurative door of salvation. And when you get ready to walk through it, right over the doorpost is this To all who receive him, he gives the right to become children of God. To all who receive him, who all who believe, who trust, who choose him. If you choose Jesus, you have the right to become children of God. So you choose Jesus. And you walk through the door of salvation, you turn around and says, you didn't choose me, I chose you. Both of those verses are in scripture, by the way. You say, Craig, reconcile that for me. I can't. I just can't do it. If anyone says they can, they can't. They can't. You can maybe explain it better, but what they're going to explain is they can't. But it's true. You choose Jesus. And he's chosen you. There's something powerful about being chosen, being chosen by a sovereign God and given the choice to walk with him. God has chosen you and provides you a way to choose him. Don't fully understand it, but I know enough to believe. How about you this morning? Can you leave our time together with enough information to believe? Will you place your trust in Christ? If you've never received Jesus as your Lord and Savior, why not this morning? Choose him. Maybe you're watching this throughout the week online. Choose Jesus right now. Or maybe you're a believer this morning, and let's be honest. With the chaos all around us, it's easier to go, God, where are you? And this morning, you'll simply say, God, I choose you. You're working. You're in control. Lead me and guide me. Lead me and guide me. Romans 12, 2. Transform my mind. Let your metamorphosis work happen in me, that I will know the path you want me to take. Wherever we find ourselves this morning, I want to encourage you, God is worthy. He's worthy of our worship. He's worthy of our trust. And so let's go to him in prayer and declare that to him. Father God, thank you so much for the privilege of gathering here this morning the privilege of putting your glory on display. As we gather week after week, whether 
in, in this room and in, in, in a service like this or in the conversations, we get to share what you've been doing in our life. And it's nothing sort of miraculous. It's a metamorphosis as you continue to, to create us more and more in the image of your son and in the formation of, of having Christ-like love in us and Christ-like character and being living our lives with Christ-like purpose and priorities. Lord, thank you for that journey. It begins when we say yes to you, and we thank you, Lord God, that you've chosen us and you've given us this opportunity to choose you. And I pray if there's anyone here on the Canandaigua campus, the Hopewell campus, online, who's yet to receive you as Lord and Savior, but even now in the quietness of their heart, they would thank you for dying for our sins, being resurrected for their salvation, that they would receive you as Savior and Lord of their life. For each and every one of us who are your children, thank you for being in control. Thank you for the confidence that comes from the fact of knowing that you, God, are one of integrity. But you're true to your promises. We don't always see how they're working out, but they will. Your plan is coming to fruition. May we not just be confident in that, but may we walk, Lord God, mindful that we have decisions to make. And so all the more, we want to make sure you're the one that's transforming our thinking, that we know what is good, that is right, and what your will is for us, and that we walk in those things. And I thank you that it's... it's it's not overly complicated, but it's not always easy. We've got to keep our eyes on you. And as we keep our eyes on you, you lead us, you guide us. You fill us with your peace amidst the chaos, and you empower us to be ambassadors of your peace in the midst of that chaos. So as you've blessed our gathering, bless us as we scatter in just a moment and go throughout this region. For those online who are literally in different parts of the world, Lord, would you just use us? to share your love and message, Lord God, in word and deed, for your glory, for others would have the hope we have in you. Thank you, Lord God. Thank you that you're in control. Thank you, Lord God, that we get to make choices that honor you and the power of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.